may be seated. So Brian volunteered to slaughter the goat. I'm not sure he'd ever cleaned a fish on his own, actually, but we were camping in the bush country of Kenya, and he just had to give it a go. I'll resist any very vivid description of what followed. Suffice it to say, Brian was hilariously unsuccessful, even though two Pakat tribesmen, tri tribesmen held the goat down, handed him a spear, and pointed to the precise spot on the beast's ribcage where the job could be most humanely done. We were college kids on one of those missionary trips to Africa that may or may not be of much help to the people ostensibly in need. The next day we were back at the job site working on a small dam where livestock, like the aforementioned goat, could water through the dry summer months. And even though Pokot was two languages removed from anything we could understand, when one of the Africans would point at Brian and and make three weak downward thrusts with an invisible spear, we knew exactly what the men were falling each, over each other in laughter about. <laughs> Here's a 20-year-old American who stood nearly a head taller than any of them, and he was incapable of killing so much as a goat. So back to the night of the slaughter. After Brian's failed attempt, the man who had handed the spear to him took it back and dispatched the goat with a merciful efficiency. The fire grew larger as the darkness fell over the Great Rift Valley. We were told its flames might flash in the eyes of lions who lay not so far off in the bush. True or not, the possibility only added to the raw thrill of the evening for all of us. And I tell you all this because I want you to have the fullest picture your imagination can muster of the wildly perfect setting for this once-in-a-lifetime meal. My very first taste of goat liver expertly roasted over an open fire. <coughs> I want the scene to be filled out when I tell you that, unfortunately, the liver of a goat, even on safari in East Africa, is absolutely dreadful stuff. <laughs> Tastes like the overcooked insole of an old running shoe. It's about that tender. It was almost as revolting as the curdled milk the Kenyans kept in gourds and served to us at room temperature, room temperature usually being somewhere in the mid-90s this time of year. So maybe you can appreciate the missed opportunity this was for me. Because the surest way to achieve hipness in our culture right now is to rave about an ethnic dish no one else has heard of, you found in some authentic, out-of-the-way place where no one else has ever been, right? If only goat liver didn't taste so abjectly horrible, I'd be instantly in. But what a truly strange meal can do especially one you can't imagine anyone else anywhere in the world actually enjoying, is remind us that our tastes are all culturally informed, all of them, even our taste buds. So much of what we like, we have learned to like, whether from your grandmother or a Wendy's ad or the stoners who hung out behind the gym after school. Let's remember this. Let's remember this about ourselves as we read that strange story and act about Peter gaining sudden access to a whole new section of the menu. Now, like most of you, I presume, I come to this story very much as a Gentile. My tastes have been formed by a culture very different from Peter's. So from the time I first heard this story as a child, I assumed Peter's trance was unequivocally good news to him, didn't you? Delectable foods, long forbidden, are suddenly declared good and clean. That four-cornered sheet was laden with things Peter's people never ate, but mine always have, I assumed. 
I thought he'd be thrilled he could now order shrimp cocktail and even better, a big plate of ribs at Memphis in May. But this is another story I think I've been reading from the wrong direction all these years. Look at it again, because here's what Peter says. I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means. Nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. This sounds more like an uncomfortable divine order that some lily-white city kid in the African bush go kill a goat, roast it up, and wash it down with half a gourd of curdled milk. Peter isn't being offered a taste of new freedom. He's being ordered to let go of an essential part of his identity. And not just his, cult, his culinary identity. Food and religion have been deeply connected from the beginning, haven't they? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, you may remember, was covered with food that was good to eat, not just blossoms that were pretty to look at. From the tragically different sacrifices of Cain and Abel, to the intricate instructions of the Passover meal, to the Last Supper Jesus had with his friends, a supper we imitate right here each week. Food is almost never just a matter of caloric intake in the Bible. It is laden with culture and memory and ritual and rules because food matters. Whether it's desirable or revolting, food matters because our desires and our revulsions probably have a lot more to do with who we are than our ideas. And God cares about who you are. And the story of Peter's vision is a story of one more person whose entire understanding of himself gets disrupted to the core of his being. Food is culture, food is identity, food is selfhood conveyed through flavor and smell and fellowship and so much more in our lives. And the gift in Peter's learning that for him all foods were clean was not about making the act of eating any simpler. It was about being drawn into communion with people whose ways he was formed to find revolting. It had nothing to do with the reduction of religious demands and everything to do with the more difficult work of reconciliation across the deepest of human divisions and boundaries that God was apparently still somehow doing after the body of Jesus had left the earth. Why would this matter to you and to me? People who've been eating shellfish and pork and, clo and cloven-foot beasts that do not chew the clud for cud for generations by now. What's the big deal for us? Well, the big deal is this. If what we call faith stays up in our heads, if we think that what Jesus wants to reform and heal in us are just our polite and reasonable ideas about what's good and beautiful and true, we're just not in the same gospel story. In fact, when the word heart conjures up for me a red emoji on my phone, it might just be time to let it rest for a while as a Christian term for who we are. Because God wants to go way deeper down. God still wants to heal our revulsions, or to call us to a reconciled life somewhere out beyond them. God wants to work in those places in us where we can't just get up and decide to feel different about the way things are. It might not be a bridge too far to say God wants to heal the place in me where my 
gag reflex lives. Because that's where any fracture in my relationship with you will almost certainly begin. Especially if you're some strange sort of creature who's been formed by a story and a culture and a cuisine I just can't understand. I still haven't developed a taste for the roasted liver of an African goat, but I'm telling you about it 30 years after I tried. Clearly the strange tastes of these strangers made an impact. The challenge from them and from the story of Peter's trance that I hope God will lodge in my gut is that reminder that our loves and our revulsions will always be imperfect, incomplete, misguided, but they can be made a little more whole over time. Not more whole in our heads, but in our bodies, in our bellies, at a table. Of course, it would be at a table. Hasn't it always been at tables where our laughter and our worries, our incomprehensions and bad tastes all find welcome that the flesh and blood reconciliation of Jesus begins? 